There is a very fascinating event, an incident that we read about in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Uh, There we read that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified and to die. And his journey to Jerusalem uh, made him go through the region of Samaria. And we read that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. You see, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and as he went through Samaria, he sent word ahead of him. But the people of Samaria, they said, we don't care. We're not interested. And we read that at least two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, they were greatly offended. What impudence, what impertinence, how rude. And this is what they said. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, what gets me is that they actually thought that they could do that. (laughs) They could call down fire from heaven. And when we read that, you realize, you know, all right, that's one way to respond to people rejecting Jesus. But it turns out it's not a great way to respond to people who reject Jesus because we read in verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked James and John. Now this morning, I mentioned that because in this passage today, we actually learn how to honor Christ when people oppose Christ. How to honor Christ when people oppose Christ. And the first thing that we learn to do, we must learn to do, is to have the right view of God. The right view of God. Now, as you well know, Peter and John, they had just healed a man who was lame from birth. And it landed them in a world of trouble. And so the authorities, you know, the very same people who have tried Jesus and condemned him to die, the very same authorities, they imprisoned Peter and John. And on the next day, they threatened them to be silent. And if they had their way, they would have gladly harmed Peter and John. But the fact that they had done something marvelous and amazing in the name of Jesus could not be denied. Because you see, the man that they had healed was well known to the people of Jerusalem. And so the whole city knew what Jesus had done. And the whole city uh, was amazed and they were praising God together. So the authorities, you know, they really wanted to harm Peter and John, but they feared the crowd and they ended up releasing them. And so when Peter and John returned home, they returned home knowing full well the very same people who killed Jesus were against them. And when they returned home, they returned home knowing full well that there was a target on their back. So knowing this, what do they do? We read that they reported to their friends what the chief priest and the elders had done, and they 
lifted their voice together to God and said, said what? What did they say? Did they say, Lord, let fire come down from heaven and consume them? Well, it seems they have grown. Because what we see here is that they fill their prayers with great truths about God. And so they prayed, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. Now the word, it describes a ruler of unchallengeable power. What the Sovereign Lord wills is done. Nothing more and nothing less. No creature can deviate from the will of the Sovereign Lord. What He decrees and only that which He decrees is done. And over matters both big and small, our God, He is sovereign. But here's the thing though, God's sovereignty is a difficult subject and at least among some circles, God's sovereignty stirs up people to resentment. People say, if God is sovereign, does that mean that my choices have no meaning? How dare he that he doesn't leave me any choice? John Calvin, as he often does, insightfully noted in in his commentary to the commentary to the book of Romans, how man, mankind, rather than acknowledging his inability to understand God's sovereignty, accuses God of sin. And I think Calvin had it exactly right. Rather than acknowledging our blindness, our inability to understand God's sovereignty, we would rather blame God for doing something wrong. And the more I think about it, you know, the complaint that we do not know as God knows, or the complaint that we cannot be happy with His will, you know, that's a complaint that comes from the serpent. You know, in that complaint against God's sovereignty, we hear the echoes of the resentment that man did not become like God as the serpent promised in Genesis chapter 3. You know, that's what complaint against God's sovereignty is. We don't know as God knows. We can't see as God sees, and that's wrong. We can't be, with, we can't be happy with God's will. That's wrong. I mean, who uttered those words? It was the serpent and I think we need to understand that the complaint against God's sovereignty comes from the forked tongue of the serpent. But notice here that the apostles gladly acknowledged God's sovereignty and they said, Sovereign Lord. Why? Why would they do this? And why now? For this reason. You see, powerful men had just threatened them. But they called upon the Sovereign Lord for this very important and practical reason. 
Even though the powerful men of their age had threatened them, people who had power over their lives, they knew what is their power against God's power. And they knew that their will, the will of the council, the authorities, their will to harm cannot compete with God's will to bless. You see, the sovereign God is absolutely supreme over all our troubles. And it really works out this way. When God is small, prayers dry up and troubles become insurmountable. That's the consequence, that's the inevitable and the necessary consequence when God is small. Why bother praying to a God who is small? Prayers stop. And if God is small, then problems are just unimaginably difficult. But when our view of God is great, when we recognize that He is the sovereign Lord, that His will, His decrees, His pleasure, and nothing but His will is done, then prayers become bold and we begin to see our threats as nothing but scarecrow. You know, scarecrows, they look scary, or at least to the birds, I suppose, but ultimately they cannot harm one hair of our heads. And that's the outcome of having a large biblical view of God as the sovereign Lord. These apostles, Peter and John, and the believers are gathered knowing full well that the authorities meant to do them harm. But they had a sovereign Lord to cry out to. And because they had a sovereign Lord, they understood what their problem really is, which is to say, nothing that God hasn't determined, nothing that God cannot turn to his good. So that's the first uh, thing that we need to honor Christ when people oppose Christ. Have the right view of God. Secondly, have the right view of Christ. Notice how the believers pray, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So the believers acknowledge that God is the creator and we are the creation. Everything in creation owe their existence to God, moment by moment. And God is not threatened by the creation that he has made. And that includes the resentful authorities. No matter how great their rage against God, God is not impressed. God is not worried. Not only that, it is also exactly as he has said, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together 
against the Lord and against his anointed. Now you recognize, don't you? That's from Psalm 2. And actually, if we were to go on reading Psalm 2, we read this fascinating tidbit. The Lord scoffs at them. And when, when you are curious and perplexed why God doesn't do anything, or He doesn't seem to be doing anything while the world is raging against God, it's not that God isn't doing anything. He's scoffing at them. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. Because he is not at all threatened by anything that his creation is doing against him. Not only so, he spoke beforehand by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David exactly how his Christ would be received by the earth's rulers. Exactly what treatment the Christ would receive from the earth's rulers. And everything unfolded as God had revealed. And that tells us something really important. Even when men rebelled against God, they only ever managed to accomplish His design. Even when the rulers of the earth gathered themselves against the Lord's Christ, they only ever managed to bring about God's purpose. Christian, can you check what's going on last night? And we see here that the Lord's anointed, the Christ, was foreordained to be opposed by earth's rulers. Why? Well, for the simple reason, Christ is himself king. And so this is nothing less than the kingdoms of the earth waging war against God's kingdom. But when earth's rulers opposed Jesus, they waged a war against God. But here's the thing. The combined might of all of earth's kingdoms, past, present, and future, cannot overthrow God's kingdom. Jesus is God's chosen king. And so we will either, as Psalm 2 tells us, we will either kiss the Son in joyful acknowledgement of his reign, or be crushed by his power. That's who Jesus is. And so note here that God is sovereign as creator, he is sovereign as the revealer, and he is sovereign as the architect. Verse 27, for truly, the believers prayed, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is to say, everything happened because of God's pleasure and everything happened in accordance to God's decree. That includes the betrayal, the trial, and the execution of Jesus 
which were evil things that came out of man's sinful hearts. Even so, mankind's rebellion reached its crescendo in the betrayal and the death of the Lord Jesus. But even then, it only brought about the gracious ends that God had purposed. Through man's sin, God accomplished righteousness. And this is the same with respect to the opposition to the gospel. And this is what we need to remember. Because of who Jesus is, because he is God's anointed king, because there's no kingdoms on earth, past, present, and future combined, that can withstand reject and rebel against the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, even the world's opposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ will not accomplish anything except God's good and holy design. So, first, have a right view of God, and second, have a right view of Christ and thirdly have a right view of our need. And notice here in this passage how the great truths of God embolden the believers. And so their response to opposition lacks any sense of panic, anger, or bitterness. Notice how they pray. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant. Well, grant what? What are they asking for? Are they asking for the destruction of their enemies? No, by no means. They pray, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, they, they were not praying to God, Lord, take away the opposition. Lord, punish them. Eliminate them. Rather, the opposition that they face stir them to pray, and the opposition that they face encourage them to fulfill their calling to be Jesus' witnesses. And I think this is really well worth remembering because when we face opposition, we are tempted to say with James and John, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But you know, a response like that does not honor the Lord. Instead, Understand, loved ones, that opposition that you and I face in the world, the opposition against the Lord Jesus and against his gospel, that is a call to prayer. And it is not our task to meet the world's anger with anger. And it is not our task to see the hardened hearts of the world and in turn harden our own hearts. Rather, we need to ask God for boldness 
to speak. Speak what? Well, from the very beginning of Acts, there have been two consistent emphases. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. We need to use every opportunity and every means at our disposal to proclaim Jesus Christ, the sinless, holy Son of God, who being perfect and righteous, did not look down upon sinners with contempt, but he came into the world to save sinners. Not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, but he came into the world to save sinners, to save you and me with sincerity, with joy. He laid down his life to save not the good and the perfect righteous people, but sinners, ruined people, people who carry about them guilt and shame. And how he was betrayed and judged and he was executed, but that God raised him from the dead. And raising him from the dead, the Lord declared him to be holy and righteous. And raising him from the dead, he declared to us who have put our faith in him that we who have been united to Jesus, we will also be raised to resurrection of life. That's our message. And that's the message that we need to use every opportunity and means to proclaim. And it matters how we proclaim Christ. Loved ones, we cannot proclaim the Lord of grace and we cannot proclaim the message of grace when we lack grace in our speech. John Calvin was once asked why he so vigorously opposed false teaching. And this question came from someone who was very displeased and upset with the zeal with which Calvin uh, insisted on teaching the right doctrine and how zealous he was in attacking false teachings. And Calvin's answer was, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I like that. And that what that tells us is that there is a time and place for us to be vigorous and zealous and unrelenting in proclaiming God's truth. But that can't be the only way that we proclaim the message of God's grace. You know, Calvin uh, has a reputation of being a little unpleasant. It's because you've never read Calvin uh, or people who make that accusation. Calvin could be unrelenting and unyielding when it came to defending God's truth, but he was extremely gracious, gentle when he dealt with burdened sinners. And I think we sometimes forget that. Yes, there is a time and place where we need to be firm and perhaps even raise our voice. But overall, when we proclaim the Lord of grace and we proclaim the message of grace, there ought to be 
a characteristic grace in our demeanor and in our speech. So remember whom you serve. The God that you serve, he is sovereign. Don't worry too much about the oppositions around you. And may our vision of God properly increase and grow. And then, and then we will see the threat and the harm that surround us as what they really are. Scarecrow. They can hurt or harm one hair of our head. Why? Because our God, He is sovereign. And that's where we find boldness in Jesus' name. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for teaching us how to honor you when the world around us is opposing your son and our service to him. When the world around us is, is ridiculing, rejecting the message. Help us not to be caught up in that, that vicious and foolish mindset, but help us to be men and women who are full of boldness and men and women who model the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.